0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Teamcast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the Teamcast is a show where my colleagues, Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guest, discuss all things mission critical teams. Mission critical teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a mission-critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the Teamcast.
1: Hi everyone, welcome back to the Teamcast. This episode will be a little different and a little more personal than what I've previously recorded. It is one of the first times in 20 years that the story of the Southwest Incident Management Team's response to the events of 9-11 will be told. To tell that story, I am joined by two retired fire chiefs, Chief Bob Maines, who retired from the FDNY after 34 years of service, and Chief Daniel Troge, who for many years was the Grand Canyon National Park's Chief of Fire and Aviation and was also a member of the Southwest Incident Management Team. I first heard the story we were about to tell almost 10 years ago now from Chief Bob Maines during some of my research observations with the FDNY. When I asked him why more people didn't know the story, he told me that it wasn't his story to tell, that the honor belonged to the Southwest Incident Management Team. Years later, when I was finally able to meet Chief Daniel Troge and hear his version of the story, he told me the same thing. It wasn't his story to tell, as all of the stories that came out of those days belonged to the FDNY. So the story never got told until now. I will pause for a moment and speak to you not as dr preston klein but as preston i will tell you that i was not at hurricane katrina and that while i can appreciate the sorrow it caused the people of new orleans the truth was i wasn't there it didn't happen to me 9-11 however it did happen to me and to all of my friends in some ways in some serious ways it is still happening for those of us near new york during that time it changed us For those of us who worked on, or in my case, around mission-critical teams, it changed everything. This year is the 20th anniversary of the events of 9-11, and the last 20 years I have been lucky enough to have the honor to support and work with some of the most dedicated and extraordinary operators in the world. I have also, however, been to more funerals and memorial services than I would ever desire to comment upon, either from my friends who did not come home from overseas or did come home but could not get past their pain to the firefighters who survived the attacks but could not survive the dust or the sorrow, but also for some of the operators in the trauma and tactical law enforcement teams who slowly drowned under their accumulated pain. It is this reason we wrote residue. I could go on to tell you about what 9-11 took from us, but instead, in the spirit of what we are about to hear, I remind you of this. Daniel Troge and Bob Maines are people, Americans, who instead of choosing a life of profit, chose a life of service, Past the culture wars and the media profiting off our fears, remember this, that the true foundation of our country are the people around us every day that choose to be of service to the nation in big and small ways. That every day the operators in medicine and law enforcement and education, the military and those who fight fires get up out of bed, put their lives on the line in some cases, and help us get after what our country's founders hoped for, the pursuit of happiness. My hope is that you can hear the following story in the same way that I have, with gratitude. Thanks for joining us on the Teamcast. I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Mission Critical Teamcast. I am genuinely genuinely excited to be having this conversation. It's a conversation, it's a it's a story about some of the events that almost well 20 years ago now or almost 20 years ago now at 9/11 at the site of the World Trade Center in the leading up to and during and after the events that happened there. I first found out about this story when I was following Chief Pfeiffer around New York City on a Friday or Saturday night. I happened to go in and uh, meet with Chief Bob Maines at the time, who I will do my best to refer to as Bob during this teen cast. And he was working late as always. And w- we struck up this conversation and he told he said, have you ever heard the story about Wildland Fire being involved at 9-11? And I hadn't. And that was the first time I had ever heard this story that we're going to tell today. A few years ago, I was lucky enough to be in a room with a bunch of wildland firefighters, and he, and they said, have you ever met Chief Daniel Altrove? And I was, I said, no, I hadn't. And I reached out and was able to get in talk with him and hear the other side of this story. So for the first time, we're going to try to tell the story of the involvement of wildland fire during the events of those days. And so with us on the call is retired Chief Bob Maines, Bob, who started as a firefighter with the FDNY in the 1980s. 1980 and spent 34 years all the way up to the chief running the incident management team there, and then has retired and now lives down in Florida and does an exceptional job at fishing most of his days. Also with us is Chief Dan Trog, who in 1980 joined the National Park Service and spent a big part of his career in the Grand Canyon National Park, and a big part of it fighting fires. And it was in those two areas, New York City and the Grand Canyon, that our story sort of begins. So we'll start the day before, September 10th, 2001. Bob, where were you?
2: On September 10th, I was home. Okay. I was in between tours. Pretty sure I was actually working on a side job that day, right. September 10th.
1: And where was home? Is it Queens?
2: I lived on Long Island, town called Miller Place. Okay. It seems to be a uh, resting place for FDNY chiefs. There's a
1: lot of us out there. Thanks. And what was your rank at the time?
2: At the time, I was a battalion chief assigned to uh, the 4-1 battalion in Flatbush, Brooklyn, okay. which was the best battalion in the FDNY history. <laughs>
1: fantastic. I have no doubt, no doubt at all. Dan, switching to you, September 10th, where were you? I was on the north rim of the Grand
3: Canyon. We had had a lot of fire activity since probably late July up to that point, and so my focus was there, and I'd been living out of a tent over there for weeks, and then that all changed on the morning of the 11th.
1: So just to just so I get a sense of this, is you, was your job at the time as part of an incident management team, or is that why you were in the in the Grand Canyon, or was it just part of your job um, uh, in that area?
3: It was my job as being an employee there at the Grand Canyon. That was my duty station as the chief of wildland fire and aviation. All the fire activity fell under my program. So that all the activity at that time was on the North Rim. So that's where I needed to be.
1: Roger that. So you're living in a tent. Things are going as usual as they've been for the last couple of weeks, getting some sleep, getting up, fighting fires, going back to bed and doing that rotation for a while. So the morning of September 11th, going back to Bob, where are you when this all goes down, when you first get word?
2: On the morning of September 11th, I was home, planning on returning to the side job I was doing. However, that morning I was trying to book a reservation for a state park on Long Island, uh, which getting a reservation there was very similar to trying to get a COVID vaccine today. (laughs) I had probably tried eight or nine mornings and computer and phone takes about three minutes to know you didn't get through and you don't have a reservation. And those reservations for 11 months in advance. I had IMS in the morning on. And I had, it was getting close to nine o'clock when I would do the reservation and I'd walked in to make coffee and I walked back. And as I walked in on the screen, they showed the World Trade Center uh, burning. And I looked at that and they said a plane and they were indicating a small plane. And as they zoomed in, I looked and I said, there's 13 floors of fire. That's no small plane. I go, That's beyond our normal capability to fight that fire. We're in trouble. At the time, we were being preached discipline. I called my wife at work. I immediately knew that it was a terrorist act. I told my wife they're back. Based on my experience, I was a first responder in 93 to the World Trade Center. It always struck with me that they tried to topple that building. So I told her they're back. And she said, are you leaving? I said, not yet. I said, We can't all go in at one time. We got to wait till they ask, you know, till they assign us and decide how they're going to do this. And as I watched live, the second plane hit. And then I realized there was going to be no organization. And I got in the car and headed in.
1: What was it like just physically trying to get into the city at that point?
2: I remember this. I just beat them closing uh, the road on the northern state parkway. The state troopers were just getting ready to close the road. And I think I went past 115 miles an hour. And he barely looked at me. That would not normally happen on the Northern State Parkway with a state trooper. So I got in what's normally about, at that time of day, an hour and
1: 10-minute ride. I went to Flatbush, probably in 45 minutes that morning. And then once you got there, did you immediately head down to the World Trade Center? No, I think
2: Dan will find this interesting. We already, my division, which is the 15th division in Brooklyn, Brooklyn has... Two divisions and a few battalions in Brooklyn are part of the Staten Island division. My division had already set up a system of bringing everybody in, taking a with your equipment, taking a city bus with one battalion chief, five officers, and 25 firefighters. Kind of perfect span of control without even knowing how to spell ICS. So I found that interesting. The so people were being split up. Chiefs were kind of the critical resource i was sent into this manhattan almost immediately
1: dan going back to you you're out fighting a fire living in a tent when did you first find out the morning of the
3: 11th i headed up to base camp to grab some breakfast it's probably i don't know zero five to zero six it's early the caterer i still have a vivid memory of this had an old sketchy transistor radio hanging out of a tree and there was garbled, staticky news that something had occurred in New York. Something to the effect of a plane crash. There was a a level of this is not normal to the broadcast. That was not my focus. So I heard that, kind of gave it some thought. And then I had teams coming and going that day. I had to get them briefed and transfer of command, all those things. And so... That's about as much thought as I gave it until mm, probably 8, 8:30 our time, dispatch called. And the team that I was a member of got ordered and we would deploy to New York City. And that's when I really began to lock in on what was going on there. And then of course, when you leave like that, you know, we have to be on the road. Call within an hour probably, and headed to where we need to go. You always have a lot of loose ends at home. And with the activity we had on the North Rim, there was a lot of loose ends to tie up. And of course, they weren't all tied up before I left. And we also had found out, of course, at that time, that all the civilian aircraft were on the ground. So what I would normally do is I'd grab a helicopter ride over to the South Rim and drive to Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is where the jet was gonna pick us up and fly us to New York, our tactical helicopters were also part of that mix. We couldn't fly. So I then had to drive from the North Rim of the Canyon to Albuquerque, and that's probably a six hour drive. And there was a drop dead time that the jet was gonna go wheels up from Albuquerque. And if you weren't there, you didn't go. And if you didn't go, we had no idea of when you would be able to get there because everything was on the ground as far as the aircraft. So when we flew that night, it was kind of a, I had a lot of moments of surreal feelings. That was one of them. As far as we knew, we were one of the very few civilian aircraft flying
1: over the continental US that night. So just a couple of things I I just wanna ask you about. For people that don't know, what is an IMT? What 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 is its function? An incident management team that you're you're working for the Park Service, and for those folks not not familiar with it, you're also part of this incident management team, which I assume is on a rotation, different teams in different places. So, which team were you on, and what does an incident management team do?
3: Well, incident. I'll I'll speak to what the incident management team does. They'll bring um, with them a. Uh, level of organization and tactical capabilities. And our kind of a mantra has always been to bring order from chaos. And so it'll cover everything from logistics, finance, public information to hardcore operational, strategic and tactical activity. And wherever we go, the host jurisdiction will line us out on how they want us to or what they want us to take care of and what their priorities are. And that's kind of it. We stay in touch with them, hook into the local network, and we go to work and we'll be there. Primarily large, complex wildland fires. That's our bread and butter. You know, you will be there for weeks at a time. And so that's that system we have, the incident command system that allows us to manage that process and manage that level of activity over a long duration of time. So you're on an incident management team is comprised of, and still is today, local, state, and federal government employees, primarily. And it is a voluntary collateral duty. You don't have to do it. You have to want to sign up for it. And you have to meet some national standards to be eligible. To be on a team and then you have to just successfully negotiate the selection assessment process and then you're good to go you're rostered on a team
1: yeah and you were on the southwest incident management team because there are several teams around the country is that right correct
3: we had two of those teams were in the southwest there were at that time and i think the number is probably still the same 16 national teams those national teams are on a rotation At that time, I think it was a two week rotation. The only reason that we went to the World Trade Center on the morning of the 11th, we were up number one on the national rotation. Trade Center got hit first, we got the Trade Center. When we flew from Albuquerque to New York, there was a California team that was on that jet with us. They were picked up first. They were number two on rotation.
1: Pentagon got hit second. They got the Pentagon. And my understanding is that that plane that took off with everybody rushing to the airport, including, I think, a motorcycle that drew right up onto the tarmac and ran for the plane. I believe that across the country, you had fighter jet uh, wingmen on those planes. Was that is that true? Is that story true?
3: It's accurate. Coming into the following morning, the morning of the 12th, it's early, way early, but it's, the sun's coming up. And it's an all nighter, so everybody's pretty ragged, but there's a level of activity and conversation going on on the plane. So I kind of perk up and off of each wing as we're coming in on long final to Baltimore, Washington International. There's a military fighter on each wing escorting us into Baltimore, Washington. That was the first time, speaking for me personally, that I had actually seen anything related to the attack because I saw no footage before I arrived there. And when I saw those fighters off the wings, it still resonates with me was, okay, this is real. This is, that's the first tangible thing I got to see.
1: And just before we we switch back over to Bob, just to remind everybody, you know, 15 hours prior, you're sleeping in a tent fighting wildland fire in the Grand Canyon, and now you're having fighter escorts into the Pentagon, and then on your way to, I think, Newark, right, to ultimately get to the World Trade Center site.
3: That's accurate. And believe me, we had more than once we thought, what are we doing here? Yeah.
2: <laughs> I often thought, what are they doing here? When I <laughs> yeah. saw them walking around, and they're green pants and whatever. What are they doing here? Yeah.
1: So, Bob, let's talk a little bit about not just that, but also your day. So you've arrived at your place. You've gotten in the bus. You've headed down to the World Trade Center. What does life look for you, you know, on September 11th and into the 12th?
2: Well, drastically different from day to day. On the 11th, for the most part, I was held back because we had – People don't talk about seven World Trade Center was the third to collapse. So they were worried about a collapse here, so they were limiting resources in, um, which I think may have been a mistake, but I'm not gonna swear to that because I think the folks that were working could have used some more help. We watched seven collapse and then I got assigned inside. And it's just, it was the word surreal is can't be more appropriate. That what I saw, and maybe why I was right for this incident management business, I remember these uh, memories that come and go, but I remember thinking, how long is this going to take to clean this up? And I actually remember asking a person or two that had more time than me, and they looked at me like, how the hell do we know? We've never had a cleanup or anything like this before. One of my impacts was I, would, I remember always thinking that they're encouraging my son, who ironically went to wildland fire, to... Uh, think about a career as a Navy uh, pilot. And I remember changing my mind immediately when I saw that destruction. I said, I would not encourage any involvement with causing
1: destruction like this. And what was your sort of day-to-day tasks? What what was a day in the life? Or is it always different? What kinds of tasks would you be doing?
2: Mostly what you did Uh, Battalion chief, so you were kind of doing the division supervisor job from the uh, incident command system world, Uh, sometimes a branch director. You were supervising the search and rescue, which we knew when it went from rescue to recovery. That was a, a line there that you knew you had crossed. And you were just supervising resources, and maybe to throw some things out you want to hear. The daytime was very challenging because there were a lot of well-intentioned people there that were in the way. And you would have problems actually accomplishing what you were trying to do, which was make headway in the search and rescue or the recovery. Working with, originally with no one, but then with operating engineers, before the operating engineers, Iron workers who are a tremendous group of people. And just working on that search, the Chiefs, we did discovered a trick when you had too many people around that were in your way so you couldn't accomplish anything. You would just say, We're calling in the dogs, meaning this search and rescue dogs, because we think we have a hit and we need you to leave because you're gonna interfere. And sometimes this was true, mostly it wasn't. And then 150 people would leave your division, let's call it, and they would move on to Brian O'Boyle's next door. And about a half hour later, Brian would call for the dogs, and 200 would come off there and come to the next one. But at night, you could get a lot done. At at night, and then I decided to start taking the night shifts because you could get a lot done at night. There were
1: less people in the way and you could really accomplish something. Dan um, going back to you, you've your plane has gone from the Pentagon, it's landed in Newark, you get picked up in Newark and you're heading into New York City. Before we go, if I remember correctly, was it Governor Pataki was the one who requested an IMT come to the World Trade Center site? Do you remember Dan or Bob?
3: I certainly don't. I have no idea. We came through the authority of the National Response Plan. Okay. Which, of course, the lead agency is FEMA. And then one of the emergency support functions of that plan, the lead agency was the United States Forest Service. Okay. The Forest Service would reach out and tag the, the incident management teams, us, give a tasking, and then, then now we're going to New York. That's kind of how that process works. Okay. I
2: don't know who called them. I did hear a name way back, but I can't remember who it was.
1: No worries. I've heard in my interviews with different people, and I and I don't want to speculate because I don't know if this is true or not, but given the New York State has a lot of forest fires, they were familiar with the incident management teams. The governor was, and he was the one to say that was the kind of organization we might need, but that is purely rumor. And I I'll I'll just say that out, out, out loud. So, Dan, you've you've arrived in Newark. What is your where does your team go from there? So we're wheels down at zero six on the 12th.
3: We got met by Port Authority. And it's important to understand, and we quickly learned that when you're on these big national responses, it it is chaotic. You will get a number of people that will ask you, who are you? why are you here, what do you do, who ordered you, that kind of thing. So we were initially sent to, I think it was a guard installation, Jersey side of the Hudson on the 12th. As soon as we got there, bust over there, I think, to begin to help organize and run a very large mobilization center. So we got all those questions when we arrived there. Nobody needed us, nobody knew why we were there, that kind of thing. And I thought this was, a, uh, this was a pivotal moment. Our incident commander was Van Bateman. I was Van's trainee. In fact, this was my first trainee assignment as an incident commander. And Van had made a decision. He said, we're gonna go ahead and ke- we call it keg up, we're gonna bed down tonight because everybody was pretty ragged tomorrow morning, we're going to go across the river, New York side, Manhattan side. And we all knew that a hub at that point was the Javits convention center. And he said, we're going to find work. And that's exactly what we did. We weren't directed. We weren't ordered. We, we did that on his initiative because a lot of times on those what we've learned over the years, subsequent to the trade center, when you're on those big national responses, you got to find your niche. You got to find the local jurisdictions that are asking and that need the help and understand they do, and then you help them, and then you do your tour, whatever it is, and then you go home. It's, it's there's too many things swirling around you. You're going to try and grab them. You'll spin your wheels and you'll waste your time. So we did that. So that's what we did on the 12th. We went up the Hudson, no, down the Hudson for a little while. We came back, bedded down. And the morning of the 13th, we went into Manhattan.
2: Well, if you want, it's to write both of you. I'll talk now about how I know that story of how Dan and uh, Van Bateman got themselves credibility and assigned to the incident because I have interviewed all the players that wasn't there. Is that all right with you, Dan? Yeah, go ahead. You sure? It's kind of your story.
3: I've been riding your coattails for years, man.
2: (laughs) Well, the way I hear the story, and I've talked to Dan, I've talked to Van Bateman, I've talked to the FDNY players, Frank Carruthers and Pete Hayden. And you interrupt me anytime I'm wrong, Dan, please, or add something I'm missing. But they finally got an audience with Frank Carruthers, who was. One of the toughest chiefs, FDMYs ever had. He acquired a nice nickname from the Southwest IMT as time went on, which he probably would be okay. What they called him, the Eviscerator. But Frank was a strong boss, and he was the incident commander. And he gave Dan and Van a moment to say what they could do, and he told them, and they were sent on their way. I hear Van turned to Dan and said, "That went well." And I asked Dan this about seven years ago. Do you think Van made this decision? Because I think that's the way Van is. He's a very smart guy, but for lack of a better term, Van is the blue-collar guy, and Dan was a little bit more of a white-collar guy. He's tall. He has a good presence. And Van decided, I'm going to go to the Javits Center with most of the team, and you are going to bird dog that guy, Pete Hayden, the deputy incident commander. And you're going to, they're going to need us. And I want you there when they start to realize they need us. And Dan followed him around and kept saying, chief, when you have a moment. And Pete was, of course, being pulled in 600 directions and said, just hold on. Joe's hold on. And then finally he turned to Dan and said, all right, you got three minutes, Grand Canyon boy. Tell me uh, what you can do. It's another one of those critical moments. Instead of saying what you can do. He said, chief, I know what your problems are. And he listed his problems, things that you can imagine when going on. You have resources assigned here, but you don't know who they are and what they're doing, what they're accomplishing. You have all kinds of equipment here and you don't know where it is. You can't account for it and so on and so on. And Pete Hayden told me he Dan told him this, and Pete said to himself, How does this guy know my problems? Because until he told me I didn't even I didn't even have my arms around what my problems were. And he said, Well, what can you do about that? And he went on to tell him what an incident management team is and what they can accomplish. And how this incident on a grand scale is very similar to a wildland fire, a large search and rescue mission or even a hurricane type response. And Pete said, okay, well, how long will it take you to get here? He says, actually, they're down the road to Javitson, probably about 12 minutes. I can just call them right now. So Pete Hayden went to Frank Carruthers who had, I don't know how long ago before, Dan, two days, three days before, Mm -hmm. had said, we don't need you. And Pete pled the case and Frank said, you know what? It can't get any effing worse. Let's give them a try. And the team came down and got assigned. And there's another part of the story, and if you tell me
1: if I'm going too long, Preston. We'll we'll pause here, and just because there's another part of the story that we do want to get into about the radios. That's where I was going to go. Yep. And some other really fascinating stories about radio towers, in fact. But Dan, is there anything you want to add to that story? Because there's obviously a lot of nuance, and there's some stuff on your side as well, different personalities and everything else. It's generally on the mark. You
3: know how these stories evolve over the years. It's got a couple of key players that need to be mentioned. So when we got Jersey side morning of the 13th, we were shortly thereafter contacted by uh, reps from FEMA and the U.S. Fire Administration. And they asked us if we would go down and see if there was any way we could assist the FDNY with the rescue recovery at the pile. So we took a small group. My recommendation to Van was that he be one of those and I stay at Javits. And you have to know Van, but in pretty clear text, he said, no, you can spell planning and I can't, you go. So it didn't sound like a question to me. So I went down to the pile with a few others we came back and said, yeah, we can we can do some good there. And then so that began to evolve. And we were now a little bit assisting with FDNY with kind of organizing the incident command post, which was a Dwayne Street station, which well, I think before it became the ICP, it was like a prevention area where a lot of prevention officers worked out of. But I could be wrong on that.
2: Like a district office. Yep. Okay up next to the firehouse.
3: So there we were. So US Fire Administration and FEMA were key players in getting us down there doing a recon. And now we're, I don't know the conversations that occurred outside of that. You know, and that could be the and is the, you know, Van and Carruthers and others. So we are um Now in there, and there's another key player, Dr. Dennis O'Neill, who at that time was the superintendent of the National Fire Academy. Dennis is a, man, that guy's smooth, just, and he was also a retired deputy chief out of Jersey City. So he knew a lot of these guys. And I asked Dennis when we were down there, why are you doing this? And he said, because I understand the culture and you don't. Yeah, that's a good point. We don't. Dennis set the meeting up between myself and Pete and so that meeting was we knew that Bob said that they had drama with communications and other things and we talked about those other things so I brought the plans chief with me to the meeting guy named Paul Sommerfeld and I brought our communication unit leader with me because he's the expert and if we ever got to that point where we could talk about that And Pete had a couple of his officers with him, actually just one other. The meeting began. The other officer who was with Pete from FDNY in pretty short order and pretty clear text, let us know that he didn't think this was worth his time and he stormed out of the room. Now it's just Pete. And Pete does say, gentlemen, I got a few things going on. What do you got? And so we went right to the heart of the matter. We went right to communications and we kind of laid that out. And then we had Mike, the communications unit leaders speak to that issue, how we can provide some resolution, because Bob, I think you guys have been chasing that for a day or two and it was just kind of spinning around. And so Mike is the communications leader is kind of thinking out loud and he's like, you know, I can have 400 radios with repeater sites. Up and running by tomorrow afternoon. And of course, for us, with the logistical system we have, we can avail ourselves of not a gigantic deal. Let's do heavy lifting, but not a gigantic deal. Pete looked at us like we were from Mars. And he was like, okay, do it. So now we're in the position, don't, you know, over estimate what you can do and under deliver. That's a bad day. And we were still trying to get our foot in the door. We still were not anywhere close to being a welcome component of that organization and that ICP. It was tense. We were not welcome there.
1: Dan, can I just interrupt for a couple of things? Just let listeners know, and guys, correct me here, but when the towers came down, the FDNY radio towers, what allowed them to communicate with each other, were on the towers. And they, when that happened, they lost their ability to communicate with radios. And so the problem that, that the FDNY is facing is they, they have no ability to communicate with one another on radios, and they've got to fix it. And the second thing you need to know is that during this process, Dan, you guys, I think, are still dressed like wildland firefighters. So you're walking around, as Bob said earlier looking a little bit like Smokey the Bear. And people are sort of saying like, if we see any trees, we'll let you know. So there's there's also some visual stuff happening here. Is that, is that a true statement?
3: That's a good point. That is a true statement. Where our team, when we're on the road and we're deployed, we wear green Nomex pants and we'll wear a team shirt. It was black. It'll be a polo or a t-shirt. What's also important to know is that that with that shirt, we have a team name tag. And it's your name, our emblem, and what your position on the team is. Now it could be incident commander, it could be operation section chief, you know, whatever. What we soon learned there at the pile is we had no authority, zero. And that was unprecedented for us. We'd never dealt with that before. So we took our name tags off and we put them in our pockets and we never wore them again because it would just add to confusion and add to the angst and add to the tension. So, yeah, we were foreign to those good folks in that ICP and they, you know, their questions were very reasonable and they, you know, they couldn't spell ICS back in those days. And so that's really what we could bring to the table. So, yeah, that's an accurate statement. And then that once we left the meeting with chief Hayden, Our communications unit leader, Mike Hanneman, he delivered. We knew he would. He had, we were up and running the next afternoon. He had a repeater site on the mast of a decommissioned carrier in the Hudson. I believe it was an Intrepid. Is that correct, Bob? That is. And then he had a repeater site on top of the World, or not World Trade Center, the Empire State Building. And we were rolling. And then so... Pete comes up to me that next day, and now it's, well, what else can you guys do? So that's when it began to evolve. I would say that's when we began to build a relationship. There was no maintenance of it yet because it wasn't built yet, but that's when that began. And then other things just began
1: to evolve about more we could bring to the table and contribute to the effort. I just want to highlight for our listeners that just to to paint a line around this, that here you are, you're an incident management team, which any other incident, whether it be a hurricane or the Challenger disaster or whatever, when you show up in those scenarios, you're the ones who run the show. You're the ones who are telling people what to do. You're coordinating all the events. And in that moment, you had to decide. and there's a number of moments of vulnerability here. One, when, when Pete Hayden is realizing that you've named some problems that he hasn't seen before and he's willing to ask for help. And a moment when you guys take off your name tags and say, it's not gonna work the way it always works. We're gonna have to flex to this problem. We're guests in this, in this particular event and we gotta find a way to support. And I say that because... The history is is littered with a lot of other teams that couldn't flex that way, that are like, no, we're in charge and we're going to fight that to the death and then nothing happens. And so I want to highlight, folks, these are just extraordinary events that are happening and extraordinary moments among leaders and people. And so it, we'll pause there for a second and go to Bob and say, Bob, what do you have to add to all of this?
2: Well, one thing I want to add, if Mike Hanneman had failed for some reason, they would have been on the road home. That's how critical that was because that's the way we were. But the other part was now they made a a friend with some very powerful people. And just to jump way ahead, Frank Carruthers has stated to me more than once, in my opinion, Frank Carruthers' opinion, bar none, no resource that came to assist us at the World Trade Center was as valuable as the Southwest incident management team. Because to Frank, I don't think there was any other incident management team. It was that incident management team. And that's about as good a compliment as you're going to get.
1: One of the things that I think about from time to time when I've heard this story is the moment where somebody is knocking on the aircraft carrier and some World War II vets who are looking after it open the door and say, We're gonna be taking your aircraft carrier and turning it into a radio tower. And they're like, Yes, you are. And that, you know, that's sort of an extraordinary moment in America. That that meeting must have been something else. So we've we've got that situation now where. The radios are up. The next thing I sort of want to talk to you about is, so I'm going to say some things now, and Bob, I want you to correct me because I'm probably going to screw this up. The average response time historically for the FDNY is about nine minutes, nine minutes from when 9-11 is called to the time they show up anywhere in the five boroughs. Four Four minutes. minutes. Four minutes. Thank you, Bob. And the average time on a job is roughly from the data I've seen about 45 minutes average? Can go longer or shorter, but roughly?
2: Probably a little more for a real job and all hands fire, but an hour, I would say, might be more accurate.
1: So you've got a 150-year-old organization that is designed to get to places in four minutes and solve a problem within around an hour on average that are looking at an event which is going to require months of work, and it's gonna require an army of people doing a variety of jobs. And they're the ones in charge because they're the ones that is the FDNY. And you've got this situation where now you need an entirely different set of skills for managing a big event. You need an infirmary. You need people checking people in and out. You need a kind of an organization that, on a big project like this that is inherent to an IMT but isn't necessarily historically native to the FDNY. And so one of the things that, that Dan, if I remember correctly, that you start issuing are those daily sheets, those sort of, here's what the tasking, I forget what they're actually called, but an IMT will do an incident action plan incident action plans and my understanding in interviewing different people is that that was one of the centralizing organizing things that happened is that dan is that a, is that an accurate statement
3: it, it is it was uh there's another key player for us that actually directed that we begin to provide those incident action plans. We call them IAPs. And that was uh, Tommy Fitzpatrick, who at that time, Bob, I think was a deputy commissioner, FDNY. And he was, we recognized him as the agency administrator down there at the pile. He was representing the FDNY, Frank Carruthers being, and Frank called himself daily the incident commander. He had more of the, you know, kind of the hardcore operational things going on on the pile. So, yeah, we did do that, but it's really important to understand if anybody is familiar with the incident command system and its execution in the real world is that what we developed for the FDNY was nothing like a normal IAP for us would look like. We customized it to their needs. So our plans chief, Paul Sommerfeld got together with, and he called himself that, the FDNY plans chief, Joe Pfeiffer. They worked out what they wanted that IAP to look like. So that's what we did. It had really had no real time tactical value. When we do them on the wildland fires, that's exactly what they do. They are a tactical tool. This one was more, and it turned out to be very effective. It was a coordination piece of business that kept that alphabet of agencies that were in the incident command post every morning for the morning briefing It kept them on the same page. And it allowed city government, it gave them a snapshot of what was going on down at the pile. So we started that and we built that through Pfeiffer and Sommerfeld's efforts framed it up. And then we would run that by Carruthers every afternoon before it was rolled out the next morning. And he would invariably have ideas, corrections, cross outs, that kind of thing. So we needed to build in some time for that, but that was good because he was engaged. He was locked in. So the first morning, you know, we probably printed, I don't know, probably a hundred of them. There was a lot of people that went to those morning briefings. And at the end of that meeting, we went back and there was maybe somebody, there was about a dozen of them that were picked up. And it was kind of like, hmm, that wasn't very effective. As the mornings went on, we couldn't print enough of them. And it was now the tool that Frank Carruthers was using probably among others to run those morning briefings. If an agency, especially a city agency, if they weren't identified and daylighted in that incident action plan, they got pretty direct questions as to why. And if you ever met Frank Carruthers, you would know that would be, that's an intimidating piece of business. But, and then also, and I only, I heard this so I can't speak to the validity maybe Bob can but it was at some point the IAPs that we were developing found their way down to City Hall and were being used as a tool for a daily briefing of the mayor's office and that's when it really began to motivate those other pieces of city government with you know sanitation and Health and Human Services and others, I'm forgetting that they didn't want to be left out of that. And then in those morning briefings, it started to work really well. Frank would just have them kind of go by and what they were going to do. And it's on the IAP questions were going back and forth. Good locked in dialogue was occurring. And it's like, this is working just right now. But again, customized for FDNY. It was not what a normal instant action plan looks like, nor should it have been. If we would have tried to force feed that, we would have failed. Like Bob said, we probably would have been on our way out the door. Bob, you
2: want to you want add anything to that? Actually, I would prefer to look something a little more tactical since I was doing the tactical part. And uh, once you got that credibility with Frank and Pete, you were you were on solid ground then, I think, but I'm sure you were walking a tightrope because there was a lot of emotional buy-in there too. Don't forget, everybody knew someone who was gone or multiple, multiple people. So a little bit more complex handling, such a complex thing, and you have your own emotional ties to it. Because don't remember, even our chief died at the World Trade Center, Pete Gansy, you know, five-star chief, died there. So everybody had a piece of this personally. So we were even harder to deal with probably than usual, which is saying a lot.
1: So let's just, I'm going to talk just briefly about that. So as people probably should have introduced it this way as just to remind people that maybe a younger generation, when 9-11 happened, the FDNY lost 343 of their personnel and many of them were chiefs. Twenty-seven, I believe. Twenty-seven, and what that meant was that a lot of people were not only getting promoted very fast into jobs that normally they would get mentored into, and are suddenly getting jumped up into jobs that in a, in a moment of absolute crisis. But they're also going to funerals of their friends and their family. They're also the chiefs of Manhattan are the ones that are still in charge, the ones that survived, and they're the ones that had whole companies wiped out, and so. This isn't like me going to another state to work on someone else's problem. This is like my own house on fire and not successfully I'm losing some people. So when Bob talks about emotions being high, It is sort of superhuman to me what some of the folks did during those periods in the sense of being able to do your work in the morning, go to your friend's funeral in the afternoon, and then go back to work. That is something that I cannot conceptualize. But I do want to just point that out to say that the environment that Dan's walking into, to Bob's point, is a highly charged environment where folks are angry and sad and frustrated and confused and feeling like they should be in charge of something and they're not sure how to be in charge of it because it's never happened before. So I say all of that and you guys can tear it apart or add to it, but I I do want to say that out for the audience as well, Bob, to your point.
3: I think you did it well. Preston, I just want to add that from our perspective and we understood that you couldn't help but understand the tension and emotion once you got down there. So a piece of business that we um, started early and maintained for our whole our 34 days that we were there was that we were very selective about who came down to the pile to work in the incident command post as part of our organization. When we finally, when we really got up and running, I don't know, we probably had down there at the Duane Street station or on the periphery you know, at or near 50, 75, something like that. We probably had 250 if you include the Javits Convention Center. But at down at Duane at the ICP, we had well-intended, hard-charging team members that we were pretty sure wouldn't do well down there. Call it social skills, thick skin. Say the wrong thing at the wrong time to the right person, and it was going to compromise a lot that we had already been able to accomplish. So we we handpicked them, and that caused, as it should have, and we, we knew it was going to come, some consternation, bad feelings up and down our roster. But we thought it was worth dealing with that to get the right people in there. In our world, we also order personnel, and we just put them into the system, and we have no idea who they're going to be or where they're going to come from, but they just meet the standard of their position, and they'll come through the pipeline, and they'll come to your incident. So, same thing. If they were going to come down to the Duane Station ICP, we would kind of do a little trial run. We would have them visit with us we would visit with them and then we'd usually take them on a lap around the pile because you can see it on tv for a long time but now you're there now you're hearing it now you're smelling it now you're stepping over stuff now now it's now you're immersed in it is that can you function in this environment is this a place that you can be effective and more than one said, I "Mean not so much." And we always had work. You know, we could we would put them up at Javits, and there was plenty to do at the Javits Convention Center, which was, I don't know, Bob, what do you think about four to five miles away on the Hudson from the pile? That's probably accurate. And most though would would stay and be very effective. That's the first time we've ever done that, and we well, when I had the teams, we had never done it since. But just. You know, you have to be able to improvise and implement things that are unprecedented for you in order to adjust to the environment that you're in. And that environment was tough. You know, we were unwelcomed. There was a lot of, uh, I'll call them snide remarks that were occurring
1: in the early days. You had to be able to deal with that, and you had to be able to carry on. Dan, if I remember correctly, you told me that one of the talks that you had to give your folks was if an FDNY came in and just was having a bad day and went off on you, your job was just to take the hit that 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 wasn't your job to to sit there and get into an argument with people. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah, we took more than once. I walked out of a room. It takes
3: me a while to get there, but I have a temper. And if I throw that switch, nothing ever goes well. So I walked out of a room more than once. I heard some stories about his temper from his son and his friends,
1: Preston. We can talk about that <laughs> okay. we <we're> not recording. <laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. I have no doubt that, that there's something there. So, Dan, you know, just to fast forward a little bit here, as we as we start to drive towards the end, how long are you down there before you realize it's time for you to rotate out and for the next team to rotate in, and what was that process like? It's a really good question. FEMA
3: assignments, what came to be more of a norm is 30 days would be normal. For us on wildland fires, 14 days was normal. So there's another element that's in play here. And other teams from our culture, our world, who were just like us, national incident management teams, I'm remembering at least two came into that area and it's normal to be ordered into those big national responses and there's really not enough work for you. And that was occurring. But what we'd never dealt with before is that to bring them into that mix we had in the incident command post could be really detrimental. because again, we don't know them all that we know them, but we don't know them well enough to know would they turn and walk out of the room? Or are they going to engage you know in the bad conversation? Those kinds of things.
1: So we, we, we were dealing with that. Hold that thought for one second, because, Bob, we should probably in, introduce the fact that the FDNY at this point doesn't have an incident management team. It wasn't part of their history. It wasn't part of what's going on. So was it during this period where you and others start to think, hey, we should probably have one of these things, or was it later? It may be others. It wasn't me. I don't think it was a lot of others at the time.
2: Um, we'd have to fast forward quite a bit to answer your question. I don't know if you want me to do that or not.
1: We we can wait on that because what we're gonna do is we're gonna actually start to transition. I got a, one more question for Dan, and then we're gonna transition to the start of the IMT and ultimately what, what FDNY does with that. But Dan, one of the sort of interesting parts of this is that you've got this situation where just to recap. You're in the Grand Canyon, you're slipping in a tent, suddenly you're on a plane, you fly across country with an IMT thinking not sure what you're taking over. You're now in an international incident, you have no authority, you go in to try to assist, you do so by taking off your badges, and and you're dealing with a bunch of people who are genuinely hurt. And you're having to manage that by just sort of taking a lot of it on the chin, knowing that work has to get done, and this is the way things are going to happen. And a big part of the time, they don't want you there, and they're pretty clear they don't want you there. And then we start to get to the end where you turn to them and say, "Okay, it's about time for me to start rotating out. Now, this whole time, they've been telling you, you shouldn't be here. So when you say to them, "Okay, it's about time for me to rotate out, what's the reply?
3: I was in a meeting with Frank Carruthers, Pete Hayden, and a FEMA representative who would, would have been the um, federal coordination officer, and essentially all federal assets that came through the national response plan worked for him. Yeah. He wasn't shy about reminding us of that, and he was right, but we really paid attention to the FDNY elements. But anyway... He was really clear he wanted us out of there. And now we've probably been there, I don't know, I'd call it two to three weeks, maybe, somewhere in there. And Frank Carruthers, this is when I got a little uneasy. Frank Carruthers made the statement to the FEMA representative. He said, you know, I'll begin to give that some serious thought once we get much, much closer to Christmas. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, I didn't say, it. I probably, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, but said something to the effect of Frank, that's a long time for us. And I didn't want to get into the way, you know, we bring other teams behind us, we rotate in and out. And I didn't want to get into all that yet. But I just kind of wanted to plant a seed that for us to stay that long would be difficult. But that's when, Preston, we probably began to have those informal conversations to try and put some traction to that.
1: Yeah. I do think it's worth noting, though, that after everything that you went through, you went from being asked to leave to, well, you you can't leave until Christmas. It tells me that you must have done something right.
3: Well, we took an element of pride in that. We understood that, but we just had to balance it somehow.
2: We had the same, as we talked about our teams, we had the same experiences in Katrina, and Binghamton, New York. I think a little extra is, I understand, and it probably wasn't his two to three week mark, I think it was more when it was decided the days you were going to transition with the Alaska team and they were going to take over, that President Bush has Frank Carruthers, you know, what else do you need? And he said, I want them guys to stay longer, I don't want them leaving that's a true story, I believe. And I think it took Van and Dan, Van Bateman and Dan Ochoge kind of to convince Frank, no, no, these guys are good too. You'll be leaving in good hands, but I was in a tent, you know, 31 days ago. My
1: family hasn't seen me. I got to go change my underwear. I got to get out of here. So now we are going to fast forward. So, We're starting to wind down Dan's role down at the World Trade Center site. The pile is starting to transition into the pit, right? And so, Bob, at at what point is the discussion to start a New York City or an FDNY IMT?
2: Well, I'm not sure. But I know the players we're talking about and others that were the future, the first people who are going to run FDNY after the Trade Center. A lot of them were influenced. Exactly what dates it started in that. But the McKinsey Report, Kinsey and Company is a um, consulting corporation that produced two documents for New York City. And one was called Increasing FDNY's Preparedness. And they had a number of recommendations. And I'm proud to say when we if we went all the way to Sandy, quite a few of them were in use and used exactly the way they said successfully. But one of theirs was that FDNY should create an incident management team similar to the wildland incident management teams that responded to the World Trade Center. And I remember there was a course and put $1 million towards this project with an emphasis on urban Disaster and terrorism. So that's when it became this is something we are going to
1: act on as an agency. What was the FDNY IMT's first deployment?
2: Well, it took a few years. We actually went back to our friends in the Southwest. The Ops Section Chief from the Southwest, Jerome McDonald, was their training officer, and he was very helpful with us getting some qualifications done. our members went and trained with the existing incident management teams, in particular, the two Southwest Type 1 teams. And we were very similar to how Dan said, Van kind of just said, made a decision, we're doing this. We were creating a team without, an urban team without a blueprint. We were kind of writing the rules a little bit. And we didn't know that FDNY actually has enough authority to flex their muscles a little bit. But Pete Hayden was... Going through a tough time politically, he was now the chief of the department and he loved the idea of us having an incident management team. And I had inherited the training position about a year earlier and we were working hard. One reason for Pete, just to give him his dream of having a type two incident management team, which is a lower qualification than what Dan's team and Van's team was. And... In 2005, we just got to the point where we could say, well, we have 25 qualified people carrying these positions we need. And then we have some trainees with some experience. So we're in that low 30s number and Katrina happens. And I remember watching Katrina and saying, boy, this is our assignment. This we can help much like they helped us. And I remember watching this and little help from a man named John Schulte, who was another Southwest individual, but he worked in Washington, and he worked in that ESF-4 position Dan talked about. And we got an assignment to support New Orleans fire about the eighth day after the hurricane. And we were supposed to not only send our team, but they designated us now a type one incident management team with 300 FDNY firefighters and officers to support New Orleans fire. And we went down and had challenges. Very things, very similar to what Dan talked about, what he went through, right down to watching us create an incident action plan by single papers at a time going through a leftover 10-year-old copy machine was at this monastery, previous monastery community college we were sleeping on the floor and to creating piles of incident action plans right up to the point where I thought it was funny. An individual who was up in uh, Baton Rouge supposedly supporting us who was a major, major roadblock told us that when we asked for a printing service or a modern printing machine at the very least to create our IAPs, he said, no, that's a little frivolous. But can you guys send me three of those IAPs things up here you got that everybody's talking about up here? That was my temper came out then, Dan, you might've heard about that. A couple of my people were in the background to hear the other side of that conversation. But I'll come back to questions on this, but I think what's important, when we left New Orleans after New Orleans fire begging us not to leave on day one is what are you doing here? We didn't ask for you. I think that sounds familiar, Dan, a little bit. What are you doing here? And now don't leave. When we left. Yes, we left in two waves and we got relieved in two waves. So in the first wave was not the incident management team was half of the firefighters and they were being replaced with fresh firefighters from FDNY. But when they hit the airport at JFK and were leaving, they were greeted by the commissioner, Nick Scapetta, the chief, Pete Hayden, the chief of operations, Sal Cassano, and Tom Galvin, who he may have been the chief of training then. He may have still been the Brooklyn Borough commander. But they were greeted them. And what Tom told me, as these guys walked by, they said to Pete and Sal, If it wasn't for that IMT or some called it an MTI, you know, those guys that helped us, we were screwed. You know, they bailed us out. And Sal Cassano and Pete Hayden and Nick Scopetta, they're not, they're pretty bright guys. When they hear that from the people in the field, they respond. And they turned to me and said, expand the team. Not immediately, but within weeks.
1: So just to, like, draw this together for folks, You've got a situation where 9-11 happens, the FDNY is tasked with a problem that is beyond what they've historically been able to do in wildland fire that specifically the Southwest team shows up and they're told to go home and they're not wanted. And they do a good enough job that the FDNY says, we actually need that capability and stand up and IMT. And that IMT, the FDNY IMT, four years later, responds to Katrina is told, you don't we don't want you please leave, and then does such a good job that they're asked not to leave. There's lessons in this. I think at so many levels, right? And it's this notion that it's, it rarely ever looks the way you think it's gonna look, but this this notion of humility and being of service and just meeting people where they're at and, and being willing to kind of ignore the behavior and look at the potential is sort of universal and it's kind of extraordinary. And I I don't know if you wanted to add anything, but what I then want to do, Dan, is just pivot to a few years later to your retirement. But, Bob, before we do that.
2: I think it's important to add this um, New Orleans story. The first day we were met with, we don't know, the chiefs who were on the ground who were great men, the chiefs that weren't told we were coming and we had been ordered. There was no place for us to stay. They just gave us a place to stay, no food. We were reported to have food. Running water, electricity, power, lodging, we had running water. That's all we had. And the first day they asked us, Well, we don't know why you're here. We don't know who asked for you and we don't need you. But they did. And what was going on in New Orleans was the fire department had moved across the river to the Algiers section, which was still within the city of New Orleans. And they were responding at sunrise to the columns of smoke, sending an engine, and the engine would go and make a determination whether the fire was in a flooded area, and we just we can't do anything but let it burn to the water level, or we can fight this fire and ask for help. So on the second morning, morning after our arrival, as the sun came up, there were columns of smoke all over the city. I don't know what happened that day; whether there was an arson. Incidents going on or was there something going on with natural gas finding sources? But one of the chiefs we met the day before his, his men were and women were exhausted said, can you give us some help? So we broke all our protocols and we just filled up New Orleans fire engines with FDNY guys. And they went up and did what they love to do. They spent the whole day fighting multiple alarm fires all day. And they came home and they said to their chiefs, you make this work because my family's been gone for nine days. One's in Houston. The other one's in North Carolina. I got to check on my family. You make this work. Sounds familiar. They made it work. And by the second day, we used the same system that we learned from the existing incident management teams, which is now national uh, the teams everywhere. We used that same system that next morning and reeled it right in. They had one cowboy day.
1: Then after that, it was time to do things right. Dan, we're now going to fast forward. A couple of years go by, you've gone back to the Grand Canyon. And now it's time for your career after 31 years to end. And it's time to do a retirement. And It's been a couple of years now since since 9-11. Were you still keeping in touch with the FDNY, with the people that you met there?
3: I was. I've always had uh, questionable friends. And uh, (laughs) yeah, there's a lot of friendships that have come out of that. And I had heard, you know, retire, do all that stuff. And there's, it was, um, I don't know, maybe a month after I actually retired, something like that, that the party was thrown. You don't have a lot of involvement in how that Buildup is occurring, but you know it's it's got traction, and I was hearing rumors that some of them were coming out. They probably just heard there might be free beer, and I would get them on a plane. That's what I was thinking. That morning there was a lot of things going on, a lot of people in town. So that morning, um, I began to see him, and you know how we bang away at each other. But I was very impressed. In fact, I was honored that they would make that effort to come out there and do that. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, that all began, you know, on that really bad business we had at the Trade Center back in 01. But that the recognition we received that Bob had spoken to, it was a team effort. Our, we went with a 56 person roster. And that organization grew to maybe 250 to 300. So all of those people are pitching in and doing that. And just a couple of us happened to be interacting with the folks who were um, on the FDNY side who could make those accolades. Um, But it wasn't, I'm a firm believer, it wasn't directed directly at me or maybe one or two others. Um, The way I look at that, they were speaking about the team's performance for 34 days in a pretty trying environment. So I take a lot of pride in that. But they came out. I was honored that they that they chose to do that. I was impressed.
1: So it's just, I think it's so interesting that those events that started back in September of 10th that years later, Bob would end up going to Katrina, right? And, and sort of in a way, repeat itself. And then all those folks, or not all of them, but a number of the folks that didn't want Dan there to begin with, years later are going to his retirement ceremony. And I think there's a, a certain sort of humanity in all of that. One of the things that, that as we close up and you guys can have any comments you want, the thing that, that I asked you both and I've asked other people about this is that why don't more people know this story? And that was always a shock to me because this story to me is one of the great American stories I've ever heard. And one of the the reasons I got from both Wildland Fire folks and also FDNY folks is, well, it's not my story to tell. The FDNY folks would say, it's the Wildland Fire story to tell and the Wildland Fire would say, it's the FDNY story to tell. And I, and I think there's something about being a discreet professional for sure. And there's also something that I think is uh, uniquely touching about that. And I'm, I'm just grateful that people now get to sort of hear the extraordinary events of those days. So I'll now shut up and I want to see if either of you have anything you want to just add or any last minute comments to folks that might be listening. There were people,
2: as we made this effort in 2004-05 to get the team going, who said, the team will never be used. The FDNY team will never be used. You're wasting your time. You know, it's a great idea, but it's going to be another effort that ends up in the FDNY graveyard of unsuccessful efforts. So during the year of Sandy, which I had, I was the Queensborough commander, so I actually was having the the team supporting me. I wasn't the incident commander now. That year... I believe the FDNY IMT was assigned for 111 days out of the year. And as we speak now, in my opinion, the most efficient COVID vaccine operation to be found is occurring in New York City, managed by the FDNY IMT. They're not only doing... FDNY employees, they're doing FDNY retirees, they're doing family of FDNY retirees, they're doing numerous city agencies, and they took over the vaccines for the homebound. And that's all going on as we speak. That's a long way from you're never going to be used.
1: Yeah. So the, the two last questions, and Dan, you can feel free to jump in with any comments, but the last question I have for you is this, is... If unfortunately an event like this or Katrina were to happen again, and you got to speak to the folks that are stepping into the roles of incident management teams, we're stepping into your roles, whether it be Dan, you at the World Trade Center, or Bob, you and Katrina, what piece of advice would you give them if they're leaving on Monday to go to this next thing? What advice would you give them? And Dan, did you wanna start off?
3: Sure. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, I would, because I don't think this would change much over time, even though our country, from a public safety perspective, is in a much better position we were back on 9-11, but still a lot of work to do. It's likely, what I would tell those team members, it's likely your playbook's not going to be very effective. Don't fuss about that. You may have to pitch it. Don't worry about that. You're going to improvise and you're going to improvise consistently. Just understand that. It's very likely it's going to be highly emotional and tense. Please understand where that's coming from and you're not the target. You just happen to be in the area at the time some of that may be vented. Most of us are this way. That's why we're in this business. Flexibility is a good thing. And your skin is going to have to be thicker than you ever thought it was going to have to be. And all those social skills you hopefully began to pick up in kindergarten are now going to be coming into play in a big way. And if you don't have those or you have folks on your team who don't have those, don't bring them into the fray. Got to keep them on the periphery. Thank you, sir. Bob, thoughts? I record that and tell them the
2: same thing. Use the lessons we learned. You do have to kind of be flexible, very flexible. Well said, we're don't worry about if the playbook isn't being followed, page for page. I think Patton said that no plan survives the first shot fired in anger, anyway. So, and I think our success has we were able to choose some really good people, and those just get out of their way sometimes. I mean, I can show you uh, when we when I was the Queen Borough Commander during Sandy, we had task force we had created. And the original thing was to open up the highways with chainsaws. And some of the task forces went south into the Rockaway that was flooded and they had a pump and they started pumping out basements. And with, without any input from anybody, by the second day, these engines were showing up with four pumps. And I said, Well, why, where'd you get the pumps? Said, well, the other engines in our battalion aren't using their pumps. So we took them and they said, You know, Chief, there's two of us. We can operate two pumps each easy. There's no reason for two of us to look at one pump. Uh, I think they got up to someone carrying eight. They said to just get out of defer to operation, just get out of their way and they're going to solve it. So that's the kind of people
1: you got to send on these assignments. So, gentlemen, we've been talking now for an hour and a half and we're gonna we're gonna close out. But before we do, now that we've been talking for an hour and a half and you look back on these stories that happened a long time ago, is there anything that you want to say that was left unsaid? Or is there anything you want to add or draw attention to before we close out? Bob, we'll start with you.
2: I think if we did this tomorrow again, I'd tell you all different stories. I mean, there's a million stories. As we go back to the World Trade Center. I don't believe anyone in FDNY has ever recorded anything accurate about what we did there. And I think that's its kind of a taboo. It's almost like, you know, you would be doing that. You'd be breaking some kind of promise, but I think it has to be recorded. There's so many stories and most of the guys are retired now and doing things like what I'm doing. And it'd be a shame because what the few things I've read were not accurate.
3: Dan? You know, Preston, what I would uh, like to do is kind of bring what started back at the Trade Center to today. There's a, There's been an initiative that's been in play, maybe, I'm probably going to get the date wrong, 04, 05, that the system we introduced to the FDNY back at the Trade Center on 9-11, the incident command system is being brought to the public safety community of this country with enthusiasm. It's now becoming the national standard for our response mode. So if you think back at 9-11, one of the things that was really problematic is none of us were using the same processes. None of us were speaking the same language. All those kinds of things The implementation of one system for public safety across our country and others, public health and others I'm forgetting is huge. And it's a really tough piece of business. I believe it's a paradigm shift in the public safety culture. I believe that takes generations to really get it cemented. I think what's occurring now is we're probably the plank holders that are beginning to kind of lay the groundwork. And it's also happening on a global scale. There's been many of us that have gone overseas repeatedly rolling out this same system. And I can't help but think that, you know, back at the Duane Station ICP, that those players in those rooms were a contributor to what's occurring now across the country and in certain respects on other part, in other parts of the world. I'm a firm believer that the reason it really got traction was FDNY bought into it. They were the big gorilla in this country as far as structural fire. Probably one of the largest departments in the world, Bob, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Second second or third. Yeah, so they're the big gorilla. And once they bought into it, that was really when the door opened. And this system, the incident command system, through a directive by the Bush administration began to be rolled out across this country and it continues today. And I think that's a, that's a hefty piece of business. I think that's very impressive. Yeah.
2: I would, I could only guess how many of those teams you're talking about then right now are managing COVID vaccinations nationally. I, I would think the amount of people with that training that are, Managing vaccination sites
3: would probably spin your head. Well, if we did the training right, there's a bunch of them that should be out
1: there, right?
2: I know there are some, but I think there's probably a lot more than I know.
1: Yeah. Gentlemen, I'm going to bring us to a close now and just say how extraordinarily grateful I am and how honored I am to be able to talk to you guys about this. It's always a huge learning for me, and I just want to thank you both for your time. And um, thank you again.
0: Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a mission critical team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the Teamcast.
2: Have a great day.